This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right, folks, today is uh, June 28th, 2023. My name is Bill Domnarski, and I'm doing this podcast for the New Books Network with G. Edward White. I take it I can call you Ted. Is that all right? Yes. Okay. Who is the author, the book under consideration today, the author of a book called Law in American History, Volume 3. So, before I actually start asking questions about the book, uh, Ted, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're teaching, how long you've been there. I'm a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law, and I have been there, it's hard to imagine, but I've been there since 1972. Uh, it was my first entry-level job in, in the legal academy. Uh, I came with my wife, Susan, and... Uh, we had one child at the time, and, and uh, she started law school, and I started on the faculty as an untenured professor. Uh, and then, I would say, about two and a half years later, uh, I had gotten tenure, and she had gotten a job in Charlottesville. Um, so um, that meant, basically, that we were probably going to stay indefinitely, because moving to some other locality or institution would have meant that she would need to uh, relocate her law practice and possibly take another bar examination. And we found that Charlottesville, I mean, the community has grown tremendously and changed a lot over the years, but we found it a very congenial place to have two careers and raise kids. We, we bought a house in the downtown area um, and uh, basically Susan could walk to her law office, and I had an easy drive into the law school, and, and uh, we ended up having a second child in, in Charlottesville. Uh, and, and so we've just stayed there and, and uh, um, been very happy. Now, I imagine with your great success that you've had siren calls from uh, New York or Oxford or Cambridge. Um, have you ever wanted to go anywhere else? Well, n- not really. I... I have visited some places, um, uh, visited at Harvard, visited at um, uh, one, one year. I, I took a job at, at New York Law School, it was called the Harlan Professorship, and it included an apartment in, in lower Manhattan. And Susan said that she would come up with me to do this. I did it for a semester. Uh, and then at the last minute, she said, um, you've got to be kidding. I'm not going to be able to do this with a <laughs> with two children at home. So she ended up coming on the weekends. And, and you know, that was a mixed experience for me because I started commuting back and forth to Charlottesville, which was not 
all that comfortable. I, I've also uh, one one, uh, um, uh, one spring I I visited at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. I was a fellow there, but I haven't, um, and I've had some outside inquiries and and even outside offers, but but I I just never have been able to find something that would suit all of us in our in our household. So and it's not as if I've been unhappy in in Charlottesville. I've been I've been uh, both of us have have really uh, have really thrived here. When I was writing my book on uh, Richard Posner, I spent <clears throat> an hour or two with Robert O'Neill, one of your former colleagues, and he just loved it there. He just absolutely loved it. So I understand what you're talking about. Now, I wanted to ask about your education because yours is, um, as legal historians go, fairly unusual in the sense that you also have a PhD. I believe it's in American Studies from Yale. Is that right? Yes, I, I was a, I went to Amherst College and I was an American Studies major there. Um, I graduated in 1963 and that was a time when the uh, arts and sciences positions um, were were still widely available. Universities were expanding their their faculties and going to graduate school seemed like a uh, something that would end up with a, a possibly a attractive position uh, as a historian. Uh, and so I, I went and I, I went to Yale um, in American studies and um, I, I had a mixed experience there. I, I didn't really like graduate school, uh, being a graduate student. I didn't like the relationships between faculty and students. They seemed uh, uh, kind of uh, incestuous. Uh, and and uh, then there were some things I really didn't like about it. But what I did really like was doing scholarship. I, I liked uh, I liked writing papers. I liked doing my dissertation. Uh, but um, uh, as I get closer and closer to going on the academic market, uh, I, I had been living with law students, at, at you know, law students in New Haven. I wasn't married at the time. Uh, and I thought seriously about going to law school. Um, and and with at that point, not being an academic at all, I thought basically I'd get a law degree and do something else. Um, the draft was a, a concern, but in those days it was a selective service system. And if you stayed in, in school past your 26th birthday and you had a favorable draft board, you typically didn't get classified in such a way that you were exposed to the draft. So um, I, I finished my PhD uh, slightly after I was 26, and then I just applied to law schools and, um, and decided to go to Harvard. Um, which I did, and and I again I hadn't thought about being in the legal academy at all, and then I got to law school, and I I saw the relationships between professors and students, and how classes were conducted, and I I liked it, and I thought, well, if I can work this out, I'll I, I like to do it. Now in in those days, um, this is I graduated in 1967. In, in those days, legal history in the law schools was not a regarded as an attractive. Um, thing to teach or do scholarship in. Most, uh, most law schools were resistant to hire somebody who was doing legal history. There was a bunch of us in the same age cohort, including Bill Nelson and, and Morty Horwitz and, and uh, Tom Green and, and several of us, who, Bob Gordon, who were thinking of becoming legal historians. We didn't, the, the market wasn't signaling very attractive prospects for us. Uh, so I, um, I decided reluctantly uh, to get a clerkship, 
or to apply for clerkships. Now, um, what year would this be? Uh, th this this was um, initially this was the 1970-71 year. I decided to take a fellowship at the American Bar Foundation and continue to do some writing that I'd done in law school. And then while I was in Chicago, I decided that I was either going to have to go into law practice or apply for a clerkship because the, the entry level teaching market for elite law schools was really not very interested in legal historians. So I, my idea was that I, if I could get a clerkship, I would portray myself as a, as a clerk, <laughs> former clerk rather than, than a legal historian. And I, I was, Fortunate, I, I got a clerkship with Earl Warren, and then I went on the market the next year. Um, and Susan and I ended up at Virginia because Susan wanted to go to law school. Um, and I asked the places that I interviewed if they would consider her in, in the same academic calendar uh, as they did for me. And the calendars were not, were not uh, didn't overlap very well. In, in effect, I was asking them to give her early admission. And a lot of the places, you know, there's not a lot of women in law school at the time. A lot of the places were were reluctant to do that. Virginia was not, and that was just fortuitous because the dean at Virginia at the time, Monrad Paulson, was married to a doctor. Uh, he was; they were a very unusual two-career couple for their time, but he understood about it, and so he said, "Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll sign Susan up early," and and so that's how that's basically Bill how how we ended up in in Charlottesville. All right, I want to. Uh ask a couple of questions about graduate school and then a couple of questions about law school. What did you write your dissertation about and who did you write it with? My, my dissertation was, which was published by Yale University Press as a book in 1968, uh, was called The Eastern Establishment and the Western Experience. And it was a book about three Easterners, Franklin, um, uh, sorry, uh, Frederick Remington, Owen Wister and Theodore Roosevelt who went west and then wrote about it um, at a time when the frontier was closing uh, and the west had this kind of romantic image for Easterners who could afford to go out and sort of expose themselves to the environment. Uh, and here were three people who did it and, and basically became, their work became attractive for, for different reasons. Uh, Wister wrote a very successful, um, novel, The Virginian. Remington actually was primarily famous as a painter, but he also did some writing. And, and Theodore Roosevelt, of course, was ended up being president of the United States. But before that, he had, he had written a number of, of works on his travels west. So my dissertation director was Howard Lamar, who, who just died uh, at the age of 99 this, this spring. And he was absolutely wonderful. He, um, I, I had the idea of doing a biography of Owen Wister. The Wister papers had just been opened uh, at, at the Library of Congress, and I thought uh, I, I had some connections. And my mother was uh, <clears throat> born and, and, and raised in Philadelphia. I had some connections in Philadelphia. I thought it would be interesting to do a biography of Wister and, and, and Howard Lamar. When I proposed it to Howard Lamar, he said, you know, graduate students don't do biographies. Uh, and, and let me suggest something else. And so he, of course, Howard was a very famous Western historian. And he sort of proposed the idea that I could write on Worcester and some other people who, who went West at this particular time. And I thought it was a great idea. I, I really enjoyed writing it a lot. 
Um, and so and uh, were you there? Were you there when William Getzman was there? No, um, he uh, he had just left um, to go to Texas, I believe. Um, and and actually, Bill Getzman, I, I got to know him subsequently. And he was responsible for uh, a second edition, uh, a reissuing of the Eastern Establishment book. The Eastern Establishment book <laughs> was not was not exactly a bestseller. Uh, and, and it went out of print, the hardcover, it never, never went into paperback initially, and, and it went out of print fairly soon after it was published. Uh, and, and Bill brought it back in a, in a Texas series that he was editing. Uh, so you can, one can still get a, <laughs> a custom-made copy of it, I believe. Well, I have his uh, exploration in empire. I studied uh, 19th century American literature for my PhD, and he wrote a spectacular book about those uh, expeditions going across the country in the mid 19th century. So I just wanted to ask you about that. All right. So you go to law school up at Harvard, and do you have any of the uh, well-known people? Did you have Derek Bach, Charlie Free, people like that? I, I had I had many of them. Uh, I had Derek Bach in an upper class course um, uh, just after he'd become dean. Um, I I had uh, I had Paul Freund for constitutional law. Uh, I had Paul Bator for uh, civil procedure. I had Louis Jaffe for for torts. Um, I I uh, uh, I really quite liked law school. Um, I think part of the reason for that was, was that I was older. Uh, I was married. I was a little bit outside the culture of frantic student anxiety that was perpetuated at the time. <laughs> This is the time my, my classmate was uh, John J. Osborne, the author of The Paper Chase. Oh, sure. Uh, and The Paper Chase is, is about, you know, experiences that my age, that my classmates had. Um, but, but I didn't really have them to that degree. And then my second year, um, two things happened that helped me a lot. The, 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 my book was uh, shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize and, and the... Uh, uh, law school newspaper ran a story on it, and the second thing that happened was that uh, Mark Howe, the legal, famous legal historian, had died right before I arrived, and they had had difficulty hiring a successor, and so they started a fellowship program to attract younger legal historians, and they started a workshop group with it. Um, uh, Jerry Cohen and Andy Kaufman were very influential in in. Uh, establishing that group, and I was invited to join it. It was sort of a faculty, junior faculty, or fellows uh, and students participating in it. And I and I realized, you know, that this is going to be a field that that if we can get it off the ground, it is going to be a very promising place to do scholarship because there's been a couple of generations in in, in uh, of our predecessors that haven't done any work. Uh, either haven't done any work or, or only a handful have done distinguished work. Uh, so, so I thought it would be a good mix for uh, my, my PhD and law degree. I hadn't studied legal history at all as a graduate student, um, but, but I, um, I ended up liking it a lot. And, and uh, um, so uh, eventually, after I got the Warren clerkship and, and, and law schools began to think I was something different from what I was, I, I, I had the opportunity to start doing legal uh, scholarship in legal history. All right. I want to ask you a question about Earl Warren, but before that, I want to mention that 
in my book on Posner, I have a pretty good chapter on his time at the Harvard Law School, and I'm going to send you, send you the book because all the people you've been talking about show up in my book. Because I was able to talk to 20 or 30 people who went to school with him, and they tell great stories about him and about the law school generally. So it will bring back lots of memories for you. Now, Earl Warren, one of the greatest figures in American legal history, you got to know him pretty well because you clerked for him, and then you helped him later, I believe, writing his memoir. Is that right? Yes, I did. And I also wrote a book on him called Earl Warren, A Public Life that came out in 1982. Um, and and uh, yes, I, I would say I, I got to know him quite well. Um, the arrangement with Warren's clerks was, uh, at the time I was clerking, was as follows. You, you may remember, Bill, the, the episode in which Warren attempted to retire from the court when Lyndon Johnson was president and Johnson named Abe Fortas his successor. Right. And the first thing that happened was the Republicans who controlled the Senate, Johnson was a lame duck at the time. This was the spring of 1968, and he'd already announced that he was not going to run for an additional term for which he was eligible. Um, and so because he was a lame duck, the Republicans successfully, and the, because the Republicans didn't like Fortas and didn't want any more sort of liberals on the Warren court, um, they they filibustered it successfully. And then subsequently, Fortas got into difficulties when it was revealed that he was, he was taking fees and, 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 and part of the fees were from a foundation that had litigants in the federal courts. And he ended up eventually being pressured to resign. The, the result of that was that Warren, who's, who had worded his resignation that he would retire at Johnson's pleasure, went back on the court for an, a final term. Uh, that, that term was, was, uh, was the 1970 term, uh, sorry, the 1969 term. Uh, and and then, then Warren retired and Berger succeeded him. Warren was very apprehensive that the Berger court, um, where Nixon had, remember in the first two years of, of Nixon's presidency, he had four appointments to the court. Uh, and Warren was convinced that uh, they were going to systematically set out to to overrule Warren court decisions. There were a number of controversial Warren court decisions, of course. And and Nixon had run on a law and order campaign, been critical of the court. So Warren, normally after a justice retires, he or she is still able to hire law clerks, but often the law clerks work for the sitting court because the retired justices aren't really doing anything. Sometimes they sit at lower court judges, but often they often they're just retired. Um, on the but they still get the the opportunity to select their own clerks. So Warren wanted a different arrangement. He wanted he was going to write his memoirs, uh, and he wanted his clerk to work on that and not work at all for the sitting court. Um, and and I, I got hired, I'm certain, because I had a background in history and Warren thought it would be helpful with the, the memoirs. When I got there, I, <laughs> when I got there, I, I found out over the course of the, of the term that Warren really wasn't very interested in working on his memoirs. He had done some work on them, um, which he presented to me early on in my clerkship, and he, he'd done a lot of 
work on his early life and his, uh, his growing up and being a public official in California. And he had taken it right up sort of through uh, the attorney generalship and into his governorship. Uh, and he had chapters on all that, all they gave him to me. And I, I worked very hard trying to, to give him comments on them and make suggestions. And I, I wrote him a very lengthy memo with, with detailed comments fairly early in the clerkship. Uh, he never responded to that. <laughs> he, he never got back to me at all on it. I, I, I'm still not sure why. Perhaps uh, the, the, the less charitable explanation is he didn't find any of my work very satisfactory. Another explanation is he didn't want to do any more work. Um, and and that's, that, that's pretty much confirmed by my experiences for the remainder of the term. He, um, you may remember there was a proposal for a national court of appeals at the time. This would be a court that was in between the, the courts of appeals, the circuit courts of appeals, and the Supreme Court. And the purpose of the national court of appeals was to relieve the court of, of responsibility for things like certiorari petitions and other things that, that were getting to its docket and, and the, the alleged uh, justification for this was it would spare the court work, especially work of a, a relatively trivial kind. And Warren was deadly opposed to it. He thought it was a he thought it was a deliberate attempt to prevent the court from reaching out and taking some of these informal pauperous cases and other cases on, on certiorari, which which were more kind of criminal justice appeals. Um, so he, he got invitations to speak at colleges and universities all over the country, accepted a great many of them, much of which was on the National Court of Appeals, but also on other topics, got opportunities to give lectures. Um, Warren did not like to start the process of writing. He, he, didn't, he didn't particularly like writing. Um, and so what he would do is he would, he would commission some aid whether it was his law clerk or somebody else. I used to joke that if Warren was riding down the elevator and he had an invitation to give a speech, he, he would get the elevator operator to do a first draft <laughs> for him. Uh, but, but anyway, he really didn't like it. Um, so I did an awful lot of drafts of, of speeches and lectures all, throughout my clerkship. And I, the, the, the story I like to tell is one Labor Day weekend, Warren had asked me to do a a speech and I had written a draft and he asked me to stay in town over the weekend um, and come in. I, I went in and he had a copy of, of the speech in, in front of him and a copy for me. And he said, well, let's let's get started. And he started reading it out loud and he would read the first early sentences and so oh, and so and so and so. And then he would stop and say, no, 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 no. And then he would begin to edit. Um, and we would go through line by line of the speech with Warren having taken my, taken my, my draft and basically turned it into his own work. Uh, and then, we, then we would, when he finished, we would start again. And he would, he would start from the beginning and read his edited version. And, they said, and then he would stop and say every once in a while, well, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> um, so th this, was a, this was a ritual that I repeated uh, fairly often over the course of the clerkship. And, and that's, that's all I did, really. I, 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 you know, any work on his memoirs, which were published posthumously, um, was done by other law clerks after he died. 
uh, they may have made use of some of my suggestions. Uh, I don't know. They didn't involve me in, in, in the process. So I can't take any any credit or or uh, otherwise for for the memoirs. All right. I, I don't I don't want to cherry on uh, on Warren, but there are two important questions I want to ask. You had mentioned to me in an email that uh, <clears throat> he had figured Frankfurt around after a couple of terms. Did Warren have the kind of personality that when he's in a room with the other eight justices, he would dominate just by way of personality in the same way that Charles Evans Hughes would dominate? And is that how the great Brown decision got to where it was? Well, of course, Warren and, and Hughes had very different styles. Um, Warren was surfacely very uh, gregarious, a, a kind of very informal, um, uh, pleasant, uh, sociable personality. Uh, underneath, he was really quite stubborn and, and uh, clear to make up his mind about things and quite firm in, in arguing for various positions. He was also very skilled uh, with, with, with people. He, he, he could, um, he could uh, uh, understand different personalities. He had a way of, of, uh, of calming people down, uh, but he also could size them up very astutely. Um, he was very good at managing Douglas. Douglas was, uh, as you know, having written on him, Douglas was a very uh, uh, independent, let's say, personality and and uh, uh, provocative and 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 uh, just a, in some ways a pain in the neck for his colleagues. And Warren was very good at managing him. Um, he also was was quite good with Black and and Warren and Frankfurter had a kind of honeymoon in Brown versus Board, because Frankfurter early on conceived the idea of having a second argument in Brown versus Board, uh, hoping that the justices would over time find a way to get to yes on overruling Plessy, um, something that didn't look promising at all on the on the Vincent court. Uh, and Warren, um, who, all, who came onto the court and very, very quickly signaled that he was going to be a vote to uh, invalidate racial segregation uh, was was careful uh, not to take a vote initially um, and to work in some ways work on individual justices who were who were reluctant to to move in that direction and that's something that Warren did really well um, you know the the question of influence on the court is a is a very layered and and, and complicated one. But I would say that that in some intangible way, Warren was enormously influenced, uh, uh, influential on the court. I used to say to, to my wife, who has a similar personality, that that Warren made, would make very effective use of the argument from shame, which is to say that he would suggest that someone who opposed him on a position was was not taking the morally uh, appropriate stance that that he he Warren held the high ground on this issue and of course that's what he did in Brown versus Board he basically said you know I think segregation is premised on racial inferiority and so if you're going to vote to support it you're basically saying that that there's a hierarchy of races 
are you prepared to do that? Um, and and you know a, a, a very build a very complicated, in some ways deceptive personality, but but I think a very a very strong figure uh, among his fellow justices. All right, I wanted to ask you about how important was it that he was a former politician, but we really don't have time. I have to get to your book. Uh, I'm just absolutely delighted to talk to you about this book. I'm holding up your book with its title, Law in American History, and then I'm gonna hold up the Cambridge History of Law in America. Now, it too is three volumes. They're almost as large, almost equally large. What's the difference from your point of view, I know you talk about this in the opening chapter, Law in American History is your title, Law, the Cambridge History of Law in America is the title of the Cambridge Three Volumes. So what's the difference in the title and what you're trying to get at in the big picture? It's all about law and culture, isn't it? Yes. The, the, the... Title choices is not accidental at all. Um, I I started out um, with the idea of writing this book when Oxford Press approached me in in the 20th century, late in the 20th century, um, with the idea of writing a volume, a one volume history that would be competitive with Lawrence Friedman's very successful history of American law. Oxford's theory was that I would take a different approach. Um, they were right about that, um, and, and emphasizing more uh, public law and, and intellectual history than than social history, and and as Friedman had. Um, and I s said okay, and and then and then I put off writing the book for a while. Wrote some other books because. I, I just was uncertain about whether I could uh, reduce uh, the history of American law to one volume. And so rather than trying to figure that out, I just put it off. And then eventually uh, in, in, the, in the first decade of the 20th century, Oxford called me on it and said, look, you know, you're going to have to do this book. Uh, you, you, you agreed to do it, and you, you haven't done it, and, and we, we want you to do it. So I, I agreed to do that to start it. And I very quickly realized I couldn't do this in, in one volume. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because I, I just don't have the gift, as Lawrence Friedman does, of, of reducing complicated matters to sort of straightforward narrative. My, my narrative style is, is really not like that. And moreover, I, I, wanted, I wanted the book to be uh, about American history and themes in American history as much as it was about law. I, I wanted to situate law, uh, law and legal institutions in these more dominant themes, themes like, themes like racism, relationship to to uh, uh, indigenous tribes, um, uh, the the uh, the growth and development of the continental United States, uh, just a lot of very important historical topics um, for the actors at the time. I wanted to see how law fitted into that, 
I also wanted to emphasize that the relationship for me, the relationship between law and its surrounding cultural context is is uh, is dialectical. It, it, uh, it it's not a simple one-way causal connection flowing uh, from culture to law or or vice versa, but the two interact in 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 complicated ways, and so. Legal doctrine it, it both reflects and shapes uh, it, its surrounding context. So I, I wanted to write a book about that, and I started off with the idea that I'd do the colonial period uh, through the Civil War. I thought that was a kind of logical um, uh, <clears throat> boundaries uh, because I thought that attitudes toward law and judging were roughly comparable over that period, and then they were going to shift very dramatically. Initially, I thought maybe I'd just do two volumes, and then when I got to do the second volume, I realized that that there's another important shift in in attitudes toward law and the relationship of law to the its context starting around the 1920s, um, early 1930s, and I probably needed a third volume to to uh, uh, finish out the century. Um, so I ended up doing three volumes between 2012 and 2019, the first of which I started writing in the, you know, 2009, let's say, and finished in 2012. The second one came out in 2016 and the third in 2019. I think by the time I finished the third volume, Oxford Press <laughs> was was very glad I'd finished. Uh uh, and and uh, each volume got successively longer. <laughs> right, we're going to be talking about the third volume, but let me just go back to that first volume. You had been there before, at least in part. You had written a Holmes Devise volume on the Marshall Court. Yeah. How did that differ, your approach to that? How did that differ from your approach to volume one, at least well, for that period yeah. that overlaps? Yeah, the, the Marshall Court, the, the Holmes Devise volumes have a format. Now, not, not all the authors adhere rigorously to the format, but the expectation is that you'll have very detailed coverage of the court's work within the time frame that you're assigned. And in my case, it was 1815 to 1835, not even the whole Marshall Court. There had been a previous book by, uh, by uh, George Haskins and Herb Johnson on the period from 1801 to 1815. So I'm, I'm really just doing 20 years. But the court has a lot of private law cases in that period um, because it's, it's, the, it's a court of sort of regular appellate jurisdiction from the lower federal courts. The, the, they don't have certiorari power. They, they, they are forced to take appeals on uh, on cases where the lower federal courts divide on issues and they just automatically come up to the court. So, and a lot of these cases, many, many, many of these cases are ordinary common law cases. They just happen to have diversity of citizenship. Um, and so they find their way to the court. So I felt compelled to cover those uh, and did so in the, in the first edition of the book. In the second edition, much of that was cut out. Um, I also felt an obligation to talk about the court's internal deliberative process, how it made decisions and how cases came to it. 
um, because that was so dramatically different from the modern court and, and for me, so interesting. Uh, Jerry Gunther, who started work on that uh, volume and who had a number of very important files that, that he gave to me and I made use of, had, a lot of had, had found a lot of material on the internal deliberations of the court. So I spent a lot of time on that. And then I wanted to introduce the, the theme, the historical theme of, of republicanism, uh, the ideology of republicanism, which was emerging in, the, in that period, and how that affected the court and, and what, what the attitudes of, of, of republican theory toward, toward government and judging and so on. Uh, so I had an awful lot of things I wanted to do, Bill, in that book, but I, I didn't really focus very much on the relationship between what was going on in the court and what was going on outside. It was mainly, uh, you might want to call it an internalist history, very detailed internalist history. When, when I ended up doing the same time period as part of the first volume in, the, in Law and American History, my approach was really quite different. I, I, I did some, I had, a, I had a chapter on the Supreme Court in that, in that uh, um, volume called the Supreme Court Emerges. There was a little bit of overlap with my martial court work, but, but uh, the, the, uh, the Supreme Court is a, a relatively minor player uh, in the first volume. Now, this internal deliberations angle that you're talking about, it shows up in what I have to describe as an exciting way in your third volume, where you're talking about this change in the 30s and 40s about how votes are recorded and about dissents and about this idea of acquiescence on the part of the justices in a court's um, majority decision. Tell us how that actually happened in contrast with what is going on today in the sense that we know everything about what the justices think about a particular case now. They're all on record, so to speak. But it wasn't always the case, was it? No, th this, this is something that most contemporary lawyers and law students just don't know anything about. Um, it, it, it started in, in the Marshall Court. Um, when I say it, I mean a a deliberative process that emphasized surface unanimity among the justices as, as rendered in an opinion of the court and the suppression of what we would now call dissenting views. So if the court conferenced on a particular case and there were issues for, for decision and the justices split on how they would dispose of those issues, the um, and the, and some majority emerged. Sometimes even you know a very narrow majority, say four to three, uh, in the early in the early court. Um, the the three votes uh, not supporting the outcome that was rendered by the majority would typically not re not result in dissenting opinions. Um, and, and that was called uh, silent acquiescence. That is, that, that was where a judge said, um, okay, I, I, I've essentially been outvoted. Uh, I think it's, it's better for the, uh, uh, for the image of the court that we not present a divided um, 
a front on cases. And so I'm simply not going to publicize the fact that I eventually, uh, initially, sorry, initially voted no. Uh, and so then what happens is an opinion of the court is rendered without any apparent dissents, but the, but the opinion itself doesn't say whether it's subscribed to by all the members of the court. Of course, it, it is subscribed to by all the members of the court in the sense that the people who were out voted in conference don't say so. Um, but they're not, they're not playing any part in it. And moreover, and again, this is just staggering for people today to think about, opinions are not circulated. Draft opinions are not circulated. The, the chief justice simply assigns an opinion to some other justice or to himself, and then together with the court reporter, uh, produces a draft opinion, and then that opinion is read in open court. The other justices have, have not played any part in its contents. And then subsequently, it appears in the US reports having been edited by the reporter and, and sometimes the, the author. Again, with the, the other justices not playing any role. Now, now what, what that process does is make it much easier for the court to give an impression that this is an opinion unanimously subscribed to and endorsed by all the justices when in fact it's it's just the it's just been authored by one judge um it, th that enables of course the marshall court to get through its docket much very readily they they they're real, remarkably swift at that but anyway just the combination of the idea of an opinion of the court um no dissent silent acquiescence and no circulation of draft opinions uh it, we're projected into a totally different world well, once the idea of circulating uh, draft opinions becomes established, is it possible to say that there's been a standard approach on the part of the justices to making comments? I guess my question is, how often do you think the other justices shape the majority opinion by making recommendations, suggestions, or um, warnings about, oh, I can't go along with that part of it, take that out or I won't join you. Um, I, Brandeis was famous for that, wasn't he? Uh, making those threats. But what I'm trying to get at is when the court in Dobbs, our famous case of last year, comes out and says what it says with this ugly, ugly tone, how confident are we that the other justices in the majority who have not written concurring opinions agree with that opinion in all its ugliness uh, completely. Yeah, I think it, I think, Bill, it varies very much from case to case. There are some opinions that are, are unanimous. I mean, the, the, these aren't publicized, but the court issues a fair amount. You know, the court will have, say, 75 to 80 cases that it decides in a given term. Uh, that's not a very large number, much less than it used to, but, but uh, still a fair number. But of those, you know, probably 10 are visible cases that the, the commentators are interested in and the public is interested in. They typically come down late in the court's term. Um, so there's a lot of cases where the court is basically, the justices are in agreement. Uh, they're 
probably isn't, and there, now these opinions, opinions in these cases are still now always invariably circulated. Uh, and, and they go around from chambers to chambers and the judge, the justices says, I'll sign on or, or render some objections or, uh, but, but with many cases, there isn't any, there isn't any real give and take because people agree. But where there are disagreements uh, and people are, are contemplating or even preparing dissents, uh, there is a lot of room for give and take uh, about language. Uh, and and the, the contemporary justices engage in that regularly, you know, with cases that are perceived of as important and conflicted. Uh, and sometimes that results in changing language in a majority opinion in exchange for a justice's subscribing to it where he was or she was otherwise not prepared to do so. Sometimes it even results in, in a change in votes. Um, now, all of this started, it, it, started, it, it started in two, in two stages. The first stage was in the, in the Waite, uh, uh, Morrison Waite and, and Fuller, Melville Fuller courts. The chief justices are encouraging circulation of opinions, um, draft, draft opinions. And judges are commenting on them. The practice hardens over time, so it becomes a kind of requirement that a judge sign on to an opinion to be recorded as supporting it. Uh, and that's, that's, by that time, Brandeis is on the court. And, and you're right that Brandeis um, negotiates uh, for language, um, threatening to dissent or concur. Um, what, what that, so that's the first stage, that, that is the practice evolves of circulation and subscription as a routine matter. And then the second stage is when Stone replaces Hughes as Chief Justice. Stone is perfectly comfortable with the expression and debate of contrary opinions. Uh, he, he, likes, he likes give and take in conferences. He doesn't, he isn't, doesn't object to concurrences or dissents, and so justices feel encouraged, and that produces a lot more concurrences and dissents, and the court appears to be more fragmented. But that's an illusion, because in the earlier courts, remember, silent acquiescence is still in place. There are norms against open dissents, uh, and so a lot of justices are just not <clears throat> saying anything when in fact they wanted, they would have liked to dissent. Once Stone gets on the court, the, the culture changes and people begin to publicize their differences. And so the court looks more fragmented than, 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 um, than, than the change actually occurred. All right, um, there, there's so much that uh, I'd like to be able to ask you about. We're running not out of time quite yet, but we're getting close. I want to be able to look at decades, if I, if I can, with you. The 1930s, if I understand this correctly from your book, reflects a change in the court. You call it the modernist court. Do I have that right? And yes. what does that mean, the modernist court? And why is that important for us looking at the whole arc of the Supreme Court? 
Yeah, I, I the the terms I employ throughout this the the series of books are, are pre-modernism and modernism, and and they're designed to signify quite different attitudes toward law and judging, um, and also toward lots of other things in in the world, toward toward experience, toward science, toward religion, toward nature, toward history, uh, in in the pre-modernist world, the world of pre-modernist uh, epistemology or, or pre-modernist consciousness, um, human actors are, are not given primacy uh, as causal uh, agents. Uh, there, are, there are these forces external to human will, human power, and human conduct that are perceived as largely driving the universe and driving human experience. And humans are perceived of as comparatively powerless to alter them. Um, one example is the, the, the pre-modernist conception of history is cyclical. That is, cultures uh, emerge and uh, mature and then decay and die in the same fashion that human bodies do. And there's not much one can do about it. The, the, the framers uh, of the Constitution are imbued with pre-modernist attitudes. They believe that they're trying to erect a republic to forestall the decay of the American nation, uh, which they think that in a, in a non-republican form, in a monarchical form, a tyranny and licentiousness uh, will invariably result in in decay and ultimate death and and they they have hope that a republican government can can prolong the the life of the republic forestall decay that, that's that's a sort of classic pre-modernist approach well pre-modernism eventually comes under attack darwinist theory is part of the story the the development of the social sciences part of the story the the emergence of, of, of a much more expansive public education, not secular, not religious education. Uh, it, it, during Holmes's tenure as a judge from 1880 to 1930, pre-modernism is decaying and modernism is emerging, but modernism has not completely displaced uh, pre-modernism in terms of attitudes toward law and judging. By the 1930s, uh, modernism largely has. So what we have, uh, legal realism is a, is a classic example, it is a theory of, of law where law is basically the construct of people in power, whether they're judges or whether they're legislators, whether they are members of the executive. What the law is is what these people say it is and, and what they want it to be. Uh, it, they're, they're not constrained by any sort of external traditional principles. Uh, I mean, Holmes, Holmes caricatures those as brooding omnipresence of the law uh, and basically thinks that's, that's an empty concept. So, so judges then are a species of actors that have authority, um, but their decisions are not essentially different from those of legislators they're based on policy, they're based on ideology, and they're based on the fact that judges have power to, to render them. That's a real sea change 
in an attitude toward law and judging. And so volume three takes place with that change in effect. Um, and so the, 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 the issues that I discussed, the constitutional issues, the other legal issues I discussed, are done against the background of that attitude, of those attitudes toward law and judging. All right, I want to uh, jump ahead because I, I, I really need to try to understand this myself. Everything seems to change in a way, beginning in the very late 60s or certainly the 70s and 80s in law schools. They become more interested in setting up a new relationship between what they do and what their profession does. It had been the case that law schools, law professors were there to aid the court, aid the profession, and then it changes. You have a wonderful chapter on that, by the way, talking about the law and people and how everything has changed because of that. Now, what I want to understand is, if I'm right about this, that everything begins to change in the law schools. We saw, beginning in the 80s, it trickled down into the court's opinions, mostly through Justice Scalia. So there's now a lot of talk, the last 20 or 30 years, about, I guess you would call it critical theory, about originalism and about uh, textualism and all these other isms that we're talking about. Am I right in thinking that if if you look at the court, its opinions, before this change, they don't talk about things like that. They simply read as regular people read in a pragmatic, practical way, and that everything has actually changed because of the introduction from the law schools of critical approaches to how to read law. How far, how wrong am I about that? Not wrong. I'm okay with being wrong. I just want you to tell me. Not not wrong. I wouldn't say it exactly the same way. But um, I'm first of all. I, I want to say I'm a I'm a member of the age cohort uh, that started law and in law schools uh, in 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 history. But it's not the only law and field. Law and economics um, more influential initially than legal history, uh, and and law and sociology before that even, by in the late 1960s. Um, uh, um, and I think what happened, I, I talk about this in, in the book, I think what happened was a different set of people ended up going to law schools. Um, uh, people who would have gone to graduate school, people like myself who would have gone to graduate school in another period, had the law school, had the market for arts and sciences position uh, declined significantly around the time of the Vietnam War. So that you get people who are undergraduates and, and, and they're taking economics or they're taking history or they're taking philosophy or, and, and they, they, they ordinarily would have gone to graduate school and they sort of look down the road and say, well, I don't know that I'll be able to get a job. Why don't I go to law school and, and see what happens? And then they get to law school and what they confront, what we confronted, uh, my age cohort confronted was law professors that were really not doing scholarship that we thought that we wanted to do that we thought was valuable they were doing analytical parsing of supreme court opinions in a very refined and attractive way but largely oriented toward as you say toward professional audiences toward judges toward toward practicing lawyers uh, very little theoretical dimension to it uh, and no interdisciplinary dimension to it. That basically, you know, they, they're not informed, their analysis is not informed by any other discipline except except law. Um, and, and 
for reasons having to do perhaps with the anxiety of influence or generational conflict, uh, my, I and a number of my cohorts just didn't want to do that work. Um, but we were not thinking in those terms in those days at, about Supreme Court, about the interpretation of the Constitution and the Supreme Court. We, we were thinking about doing our own work in our own particular fields. But then what happened simultaneously uh, in the 1970s was critical legal studies emerged. And then uh, in response to critical legal studies, uh, originalism emerged. Uh, and, and these were both initially products uh, of the academy. Uh, but they came at a time when the uh, judicial interpretation of constitutional provisions was at a kind of crisis because the, um, the idea of judicial self-restraint, which was very popular, you remember, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, uh, Harvard Law School forwards are all about that, uh, and judges are espousing it. And, and somehow in the, in the early years of the Burger Court, late years of the Warren Court, the idea of judicial self-restraint just lost power. But then the problem is, how are judges constrained? If judicial self-restraint is kind of a myth, um, and, and you've abandoned the idea of law as a timeless set of foundational principles that bind judges, then what's constraining judges? These are, you know, these are unelected people with life tenure. Um, are, are, if they can just go ahead and interpret the Constitution in accordance with their own contemporary values, then, then shouldn't we worry about that? Um, and basically, critical legal studies says, no, we shouldn't worry about that. We should make it, we should reveal it to be the overtly political process that it is and, and just, you know, encourage judges to follow their own political agendas. And we'll try to tell them what we think the right agendas are. Um, and we'll deconstruct their work to show how, how it really is based on hidden agendas and, and, and they should be revealed. And the, um, the originalists, the people who end up being originalists are very disturbed at this tendency. They're very concerned about that, that there'll be, people will start thinking of judges as wholly political actors, not constrained at all. And so they develop the idea of constraining judges through history. Um, by by looking back at the at the constitutions, how provisions are originally understood and intended, and and uh, and and using those original understandings as constraints on judges, and Scalia popularizes this in a way. Really, uh, the idea of originalism starts with Ralph Berger. Uh, who, who's kind of a, a research fellow at Harvard Law School, writes a book called Government by Judiciary. Uh, and when the Burger, when the first volume, the first edition of that comes out in the 1970s, it's completely panned by critics. Um, when the second edition comes out, it's, it's become quite influential. Uh, and and part, part of that has to do with Edwin Meese. You remember Edwin Meese's, uh, when, when he was attorney general, urging a, a, a version of originalism, and part of it is Scalia. Um, it, it, is, it, it is a, quote, conservative approach in the sense that it discourages judges from, let's say, reinterpreting 
open-ended provisions in accordance with contemporary contexts. So, for example, if you don't if you don't think the equal protection clause protects uh, same uh, same sex relationships, uh, or you don't think it it protects um, uh, same sex mar same sex marriages or consensual uh, same sex relationships, uh, you interpret it to in to include that. That is, you interpret it to forbid classifications based on on sexual preference. That that uh, presupposes a kind of open-ended uh, way of interpreting the Constitution, and it it's um, it, it's a source of concern uh, for some judges, judges and commentators. And originalism is a kind of break to that uh, because it, it it insists that you go back and be at least faithful to some kind of original understanding of what language meant. Uh, in the provisions, and so obviously, if if in in the time the Fourteenth Amendment is passed, nobody's thinking about protecting same-sex marriage, then then the Fourteenth Amendment doesn't have that as an original understanding, and you can't uh, interpret equal protection in that fashion. You know that that's a that's a radical version of originalism, but but it, it is intended to be a constraint. The constraint being a constraint derived from history. All right, so in the mid-1980s, uh, Justice Brennan and Ed Meese, you've brought up Ed Meese, have this battle in the press in articles about the static Constitution and the living Constitution. Now, I'm going to take a stab at this and say that Earl Warren, we started with him, would have agreed with Justice Brennan. Am I right about that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I mean, you right. know, now, we only have, uh, uh, I'm sorry, we only have 10 minutes to go, and I, I have to ask you, since you know more about the Supreme Court than anyone in the um, in America today, tell me how we should be thinking about today's court in the context of what has happened before, other courts dealing with major social issues. Are we, should we be worried about today's court, is my question. Well, whether you're worried or not, in some ways, is, is a matter of politics. Um, but but one thing to say about today's court, it illustrates the fortuity of presidential nominations. Uh, Donald Trump ended up having the opportunity to put three justices on the court in a comparatively short time because other justices retired or died. Um, Trump served for one term, and, and I want to just take the opportunity to say I hope just one term, <laughs> but, but, you know, so he's just on for four years, but in four years, he gets three nominations. In four years, Jimmy Carter gets no nominations. In Franklin Roosevelt's first term, he gets no nominations. But by the time Franklin Roosevelt leaves the White House, he's had eight nominations. So part of what the, part of what is, is about the fact that Trump delegated the selection of judicial nominees to the Federalist Society, and the Federalist Society was very well versed in selecting people, identifying and selecting people, and Trump basically deferred to them. So you get three people on the court that certainly would not have been nominated um, had Biden been president. Uh, had, had in, indeed, 
might well not have been nominated had had uh, George Bush, George W. Bush been nominated. Um, so part of it then is you get these three justices who are, you know, they're, they're not just, quote, conservatives. They're a brand of Federalist Society conservatives, uh, aggressive um, and, and prepared to, uh, to use their positions to reinterpret decisions, Roe v. Wade being a, uh, an example, uh, that they think are, that for one reason or another, they think are unsound. Um, so, you know, it, these things, however, that, that is to say judicial nominations are, although, although they may seem very trying in particular times, that they are temporary. Judges have limited tenures. It's it's comparatively rare, even with added longevity, it's comparatively rare for justices to serve over 25 years. Um, and over that 25-year period, presidents change. Uh, the, the coalitions that elect the presidents change and the presidential values change. And so you get, and, and the, the Senate composition of the Senate changes. And so you get different nominees. Um, but, but in the short run, uh, this is a combination of Trump appointees and some previous appointees, particularly Alito and Thomas, uh, and to some extent Roberts, from, um, from earlier Republican presidents who were interested in appointing justices that they perceived to be uh, thinking along their, their lines, which, which we might want to call a conservative, although I, I would say that Justice, Chief Justice Roberts is a very different sort of conservative from, say, let's say, uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, but but I, I think, uh, so that's one point I want to make. The other point I want to make is, is the, whether or not the court wants to, the court has to consider the larger culture and attitudes in the larger culture. If it gets too far uh, apart from mainstream attitudes, it's going to take considerable heat. Um, it, it may have gotten too far apart from mainstream attitudes in, in, in the Dobbs decision. Um, I, I, I note that it's, I note that in this uh, voting rights case just decided the other day, uh, it's backed off from the extreme position about independent state legislatures controlling the voting process. Um, I don't think it's going to back off in affirmative action. I think the, I think there's a there's a substantial majority to to uh, change the rules of affirmative action. But well, I, I might be a, I, I might be a cynic, but the impression I get is that there's talk in the hallways of the Supreme Court, the culture be damned, that there is no connection anymore between the court's understanding awareness of culture in America, but. Now, I actually wrote a column a few weeks ago for a local paper, and I ended up with the argument that uh, we need better people on the court. Now, that sounds kind of simplistic, but when you hear about all these uh, revelations, when you read the Dobbs opinion and the anger, the vitriol that just seeps out of that opinion, I don't think I'm wrong about that, that we need better people. And I look back to, say, Earl Warren. He was a terrific guy, wasn't he? Could he ever countenance What's going on the court today? Knowing what you know about him, he he was uh, he was a difficult boss, 
but he was a, a, a admirable figure um, uh, with, with, a, with a good heart, um, with a sense of fair play and justice, um, with a forgiving and optimistic attitude for the most part about humans. Um, yeah, I, I said in, in the book on Warren, we may not see his like again. Um, uh, I, I hope we do. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there I, I'm not going to name names, but there are some people on the court whom I would describe as nerds um, who, uh, who are reveling in their power uh, and who have not had sufficient experience in, in, in the world, who have been largely sheltered in, in, in academics and the judiciary, uh, and, and, uh, and their presence uh, is in some respects unfortunate. All right. Uh, I think you chose the right word, reveling in. That's a great word to choose. Now, um, we're going to have to close here. I want to say one thing, and then afterwards, you and I can talk for a minute. I have something I wanted to mention to you. I'm just a, uh, I'm a law and guy. I mean, I have my PhD in literature, but I study law, become, I think, a legal historian. Um, I know a fair amount about legal history. I do. But I'm not, I'm not, Bill uh, Yurofsky. I'm not uh, Mark Tushnut, but what I want to say is that I read your volume pretty carefully. I said I read those three volumes from the uh, Cambridge history. I glanced at it. I haven't been able to read all of them yet. The other two volumes in your history. It's a monumental achievement. It really is. You know, they say about philosophy, that everything in philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Everything in American legal history is a footnote to you. Well, that's very nice of you to say, Bill. Um, I, I have to say that that you know the review culture has changed dramatically. I, um, as I was writing these books, I was aware that that uh, uh, now the chief basis for reviews of, of forthcoming books is, is Amazon.com, uh, and, and reviewers don't tend to be filtered. Um, so it's been a little humbling for me to to <laughs> produce these volumes and. And see the comparatively, um, uh, let's say, small and idiosyncratic reaction to them. So I very much appreciate those comments. Well, um, if no one else has said it, we are very lucky to have had you writing these books. All right, so that's it for today. I hope everyone got to the end of the podcast because some of the good stuff came at the end. Your uh, views on the court, which I really appreciate your uh, your willingness to talk about the court, the current court. All right, so we're going to close up today. Again, this has been a New Books Network podcast on Law in American History, Volume 3, with Ted White of the University of Virginia. You should go out and buy this book. All right, so, Ted, I'm going to wrap this up and just stay with me for a minute, and then I want to say a couple of things. Okay, hold on.